as a repercussion. 15 days to the elections. By the time I come here next week, it's going to just be seven days to the elections. And in two weeks, in two weeks, I'm going to preach a series on nationhood. Two weeks. I'm going to preach a series on nationhood. Please get your writing parts. It's going to be a very important series on nationhood. You know, what makes up a nation? What should we look for in a nation? What is a nation itself? How do nations evolve? And this is a series that is going to help a lot of people and shape their mindsets. Nationhood, part one. What is a nation? A nation deals with a fact or a status of being a nation. Nationhood, I mean. National identity, independence, status of a nation. And let me tell you something. Nationhood and the use of the term nationhood <coughs> evolved over the years. Because more nations started to be created as a time went on. Before nationhood, you used to have empires. Empires were agglomerations of various conquered territory. You had the Roman Empire. You had the Ottoman Empire. You had the Byzantine Empire. You had many empires. These empires were agglomeration of many conquered territories. Because leaders then conquered different territories and they turned them into their own. Take, for instance, the Roman Empire spanned up to Africa. What is known as Africa was conquered by the Romans by one of their famous generals called Scopius Africanus in what is called the First and Second Punic Wars where Hannibal was defeated. So the Roman Empire spanned from Africa, parts of Europe, and it went deep into Asia Minor. And that's what made up the Roman Empire. And it was great in its time. It was great in its time. Now all the trappings of an empire. But at some points, it started to disintegrate. This is a very powerful class. Please call somebody to listen because it will teach you a lot. And they had people that were big players in the Roman Empire. They had Caesar, Augustus, 
They had intellectuals, you know, public speakers. They had the likes of Cicero. They had Julius Caesar. They've got people. They've got Mark Anthony. They had people that thought how a society should pan out. And they had the ethos for their own society. Ooh, I, I really need that, Yemi, if you could avail me that. Okay, but you have to go. Okay. So, they, they had the ethos. They had the ethos for what the society represented. And truth to be told, they did follow the ethos. The Roman Senate, for instance, was a very egalitarian one that was robust with his own ideas. And the fact of the matter is, most of the way we arrange the Senate of most nations today are pretty much shaped around what the Romans had. So they had debates. They were respected. They had city planning laws. But it was just the fact that it was city planning laws that cut across a lot of areas. It was city planning laws that cut across a lot of areas. They looked for ways to solve societal problems. They built roads. As at AD3 something, the third century there about, they built roads. And they spanned for a lot of years. I kid you not. I still see some roads built by the Romans in England because hope you know that what is England today was colonized by the Romans. They had a language of communication which was the elitist language. of Latin. In fact, the Romans built something called the cobblestone roads, where they used stone to build roads and cobbled them together. They were cobble-shaped. And I've still seen some of those roads. They had town planning. Yes, they did have town planning. The egalitarian people in their society also had recreational centers. And their recreational centers were top shape. In fact, for further reference, you can go to a city that I've had the privilege of visiting called Bath. Bath Spa, because there were actually Roman Tamil baths in that city. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And you can see lots of these developments. In providing water for their citizens, 
Guess what they did? They had a system where they transported water. Yes, they did. And they provided water and they would transport, you know, water from one city or from one water source to the main city. And they built all the structures in there. In fact, there's something called aqueducts, which they used to build, which they built to bring water from outer areas into inner areas. If you still go some parts of Europe, some parts of Portugal today, you still see those water systems built by the Romans, still they're aqueducts. But the difference between the Roman Empire was the fact that it was an agglomeration of many conquered territories. After that, we've had empires. We've had Oyo Empire. Or the old Oyo Empire, like it's called, that spanned up till Dahomey. And everybody too had systems. We've had the Ottoman Empire. Then we had the dynasties in China, the Ming Dynasty. And they had prospects of development. But afterwards, nations started emerging. And on the African continent, we had empires like Guy, Mali, Mansa Musa headed the empire. Timbuktu was the capital of learning. But the interesting thing is, they started cascading into nations. Because when the colonialists came, it was easy for the colonialists to be able to segment these various empires into nations for easy running of their country. So one of the things they did was to take the African continent, for instance, and cut them into chunks of little nations so that they'll be able to put in their colonial heads there to run it for them. So take, for instance, the vast land owned by the likes of King Makoko that Pierre Pedro Paulo de Braza discovered was turned into Congo Brazzaville just across the water from Congo. So for them to be able to easily run it, they had Congo Brazzaville, which it was still part of the old, you know, Kambagita 
Congo Empire, if there's anything like that, or the Congo area. And they turn it into little chunks of country for them to be able to run. And that's what they did. Even without their country, Nigeria. When they came in here, they met us fighting. And I say that because a lot of people, the mistakes we made that the colonial masters used against us are still the mistakes we are making today. And that's why in teaching about nationhood, we need to learn to do things right as a people. When the colonialists came, we were not united. So they met us fighting. And because we were fighting, it was easy for them to take over. <clears throat> so most parts, for instance, in the Yoruba area, were fighting. We had fought the Kiriji and Jalumi wars when the British came. And you know what that meant for us? Our army was already depleted. And it was so easy for them to take over. And that's why predominantly what the British did was just to make a truce among the warring factions. And once they made the truce with Captain Bauer, it was easy. Because most of our people had even been sold into slavery because of the Kiriji and Jalumi Wars, the hundred year Yoruba Wars, they are called. So before you know it, from 1900 to about 1910, 1915, no, to about 1906, yes, if my memory serves me right, they are taking over most parts of the Southwest. And obviously, you know, it was Lagos they first took over as a crown colony in the late 1800s, 1851 52. So by 1906, they had taken over most parts of the Southwest and they had joined them together with Lagos and they called in the Southern Protectorate of Nigeria. That's what they did. And why could they take over the Southern Protectorate of Nigeria so easily? Was well, simply because they met people around here fighting. There were massive fault lines. We had had the Jeshaikiti Parakbo wars against the, the battle, the garrison place. We had had the squabble, you know, with Fabumi and his people. So we're already divided. And because of those divisions, it was easy for them to take those parts, agglomerate them, and form a nation with the Lagos Protectorate for easy running. Anyway, they had converted Lagos into their crown colony, as at them. I think the first important lesson you should learn 
that a nation that is constantly divided against itself will have problems. And that's why Nigerians should unite. Because you see, once you are divided and you can't speak true to power with one voice, and it's always about your selfish interests, then nothing will happen in your country. It will constantly revolve around its own dilemmas of destruction and chaos. But when a nation has a code of integrity that whoever is concerned will be shown that code of integrity, then you know to a large extent the nation is a strong nation. Nationhood. Nationhood has to do with identity. And I've just been telling you how the nation's evolved. And after the British had conquered most parts of the Southern Protectorate and united them in 1906, then they brought in Lugard. The reason why they brought in Lugard was because he was known for his brutality to be able to get things done on time. And then they said they were going to get a lot of resistance when they started to conquer parts of the Northern Protectorate. And because of technological advancement, also made it easy for them. A certain American called Halloran Maxim had discovered something called the Maxim gun, which obviously could shoot more bullets per minute. So the conquest became easier. By 1914, they had completed they had taken most parts of the North. Then they had the amalgamation for them to be able to build an easy country and a nation. But the question is, we cannot keep blaming the British, isn't it, for our problems. It is time for us to collectively speak as one. Because the nominal fact is, even if tribe and tongues may differ, but is a possibility of an agreement and brotherhood that comes through unity and comes through fairness and comes through justice and listening out to one another. But this can only be forged with a collective understanding and by politicians that don't use our differences to divide us as a people, but use it as strength to be able to unite us and make us build better nationhood. Because when you look at it, it also applies all over the African continent. If you check the timeline of use of the word nationhood, it increased in the 1950s, and you know why? Because out of Africa alone, 50 new identities had their own full-fledged independence 
in the 1950s into the 1960s. And maybe went up to 1970s and 1980s, if you want to say countries like Zimbabwe. I got their independence in the early 80s. That was formerly Rhodesia. Or if you want to talk about probably Mozambique, so Moran Michel that got his independence around 1975. Probably Mozambique and Zimbabwe was sort of like the last frontiers, but predominantly most of the other countries got their independence longer. In the 50s and the 60s, 50s and 60s, Ghana, you know, two years up to the 60s, Nigeria afterwards. But for you to be able to build a nation, it must be done in collective love. I want you to look at it deeply. Love and nation building is not an easy task. But it's, it's a constant task in belief. And trust me, which doesn't come easy? Which comes with a lot of hurts? But you see, the conversation about the hurt is the fact that you know that we're pressing towards a nation. We're pressing towards a nation because we see the possibility and the greatness and the togetherness of good nationhood or of a good nation. But in that same quest and path to building a nation, you will have setbacks and pitfalls by people that think they are better than other people in the union or they're smarter. But it doesn't stop you from having the belief in the nation because you see, people that think they're better than others is just for a moment of time. And no matter how long it takes, time will also pass them by. So you cannot give up <clears throat> on a nation because of few individuals. Because there's something bigger about the grace that nation espouses rather than the interest of a few individuals. I'd like to pause the first part on the series on nationhood here and get comments and calls. I'll talk about this, then I continue part two. Part two will deal with tenants about to build a nation. This is nationhood part one. This is a very powerful message. And it's going to be